Pharisee and a student of the law, the Apostle Paul, patriarch Abraham, that is to defend his assertion that the gospel of grace brings justification to the believer by faith alone. Paul has already cited the experience of Abraham, and he will turn to him again, where Abraham is referred, referred to repeatedly throughout the fourth chapter of Romans. But now he brings in the witness of David, citing two verses from Psalm 32, uh, where David wrote, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not Abraham, I pointed out that Abraham, next to Jesus Christ, is the most important person in the Bible, and that in the New Testament he is mentioned more times, except for Jesus, than anyone else. And all of the Old Testament figures would have looked to Abraham unquestioningly as being the patriarch of their faith. Abraham is a giant in, in the Judean faith, but that does not mean that David was in any way uh, insignificant. David was the greatest of all of Israel's kings and the one who embodied the devotional spirit of the nation. Uh, and those to whom Paul was writing would have had the highest regard for David as well. It is hard to appreciate the Jews' special regard for David unless you think of the great men of history and make a composite, perhaps, of them and all of their best qualities. Uh, in our history, of course, men like Washington and Lincoln and uh, Jefferson, all of those uh, combined. And then that would not even probably reach the stature to which the Jews accorded King David. David is important in the development of Paul's argument in another way as well. And uh, this makes his testimony, I think, especially important for us as we study this doctrine of justification by faith alone. And I said this a couple of uh, weeks ago because the, the words of David are cast in a negative form. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute or count sin. And I said then that we may divide up sin into sins of commission and sins of omission. So if God does not impute sin to a person, then it means that they have 
neither done something they should not have done, nor have they failed to do something that they should have done. So that implies a perfect righteousness. So how did God impute that to David? That is what Paul is getting at. And what he's going to conclude with is the same as he did with Abraham. That David believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Or David believed God and God did not impute sin to him. Uh, Abraham uh, is the positive side of the equation. God imputed the righteousness of Christ to Abraham. David is the same, it's the same thing, it's just saying it in a different terminology. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The negative wording, I think, is important in presenting the gospel in our day uh, because I think it speaks to where most of the people in our culture are, perhaps. Uh, the positive statement of the justification principle tells us how we can be right with God. And obviously, we need to be right with God. But the difficulty is that today, most people don't feel that. Even people who claim to be believers or who claim to be religious often do not feel any uh, sin, that they have any sin they're aware of. You ask the average person, do you think you're a sinner? Well, no, not really. I mean, you know, I might have done a couple of things, but no, I wouldn't see myself as a sinner. Now, Martin Luther saw himself as a great sinner, and it, uh, it bothered him a lot. He agonized over it. And Romans 1 to 17, he, he kept reading it and reading it, and he didn't see how he could possibly ever achieve it. And then he realized that it was a righteousness that God was going to give him, not one that he had to attain, that God would impute it to him when he believed. But very few today feel the intensity of Luther's anguish. Maybe a few, but not many. Most people uh, today do not think of themselves of being wrong about much of anything. On the contrary, they think that everything is quite, uh, uh, quite peachy between them and a holy God. So they feel no need for justification. Uh, I, I think that's illustrated by a, a, a story that Dr. R.C. Sproul used to talk used to tell when he would mention uh, most people believe in justification by death. That is, if you die, you've been justified. Uh, several years ago, he said that he tried out the uh, first question uh, in evangelism explosion on his son, who was about 11 or 12 years old at the time. Those of you who have been through the program and know anything about it, you know that that initial question is, if you were to die tonight and go to stand before God, and he said to you, why should I let you into my heaven, how would you answer? And uh, so Dr. Sproul did that, and his son looked at him and said, I'd say, well, I'm dead, ain't I? I mean, you know, 
the, the point seemed to be that all he needed to do to gain heaven was to die. Well, that's where most people are today. Uh, no matter how wicked a person may live, when they die, they become a saint. And receiving the righteousness of Christ doesn't occur to them. Nor does it occur to them that they go to stand before a holy God. And that that holy God demands holiness from them. A bit of, uh, a, a bit of news uh, this week was a, a, a U.S. representative uh, uh, told another man on the floor of the U.S. Congress that the will of God was of no concern to the United States Congress. I'll guarantee you it will be when he goes to stand before him. Then it will be a concern to him and to everyone else who goes to stand before him. But because people respond that way in our time, I think it's necessary to teach the doctrine of justification at length so that we understand it from both the positive side and the negative side. And yet when we, when we come to the testimony of King David, uh, because it is cast in a negative form, I think it, it speaks to our contemporary culture, perhaps, in a clearer way. It speaks of lawless deeds, of transgressions, uh, of a burden that contrasts with the blessed, uh, blessedness of the person that is freed from God's forgiveness. I know from my experience in counseling, there are few people who do not carry around guilt from the burden of sinful actions. Most contemporary counseling today in the secular world is designed to tell you that you ought not to be guilty. That no matter what you have done, you should never feel guilty. Because after all, you've not really done anything wrong. And in in, if you've not committed some horrible crime, if you've, you know, if you've not murdered a liberal, you're okay. You know. Uh, but most people know that what they have done, they instinctively feel that what they have done is wrong. Uh, and they carry about that burden. And they ask the question, how can I be forgiven? They, they need forgiveness. So how do you answer them? If a person is looking for forgiveness, how do you answer them? Human forgiveness, while comforting and nice, is not enough. No mere human being can forgive another's sin, particularly if it is against a third party. I mean, if, if, if Barry wrongs me, I can forgive him. But if he wrongs Randy, I can't forgive him. That's between him and Randy, you see. So true forgiveness can really only come from God. Uh, the only forgiveness that is of any true value is that which comes from a holy God. Uh, and that's what David is talking about. When David said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not count iniquity. This is what needs to be said to anyone 
who has a conscious awareness of their past sins. It's the only thing that works. It's the only thing that matters. David knew the terrible burden of sin as a result of his transgressions. All of us know the story. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, another man's wife. Then he arranged for Bathsheba's husband, a man by the name of Uriah, who was one of his mighty men, David arranged for him to be murdered in order to cover up his sin. He covered it up, but the act was still there. Why? Because David's cover-up was a matter of self-justification. It, it, did not, it did not clear David with God. It cleared David uh, for a moment, but it, the, the guilt of what he had done was obviously still there. It was only when David knew that his sin was covered by the blood of Christ that he could be freed from guilt and count himself blessed. It was only when he was confronted by Nathan and when he truly repented and God forgave him was his sin really covered. I think one of the one of the biggest problems that all of us deal with in various degrees is guilt of our sin. And I'm talking about believers now. I'm talking about those of us who are believers. We feel guilt because we have not lived up to the ideal that we know that a Christian should live up to. We sin. We are justified but we are still sinful. And we have to deal with that guilt. Does your sin return to your mind again and again? Is there something that you did 40 years ago that keeps coming back to your mind? By the way, that's the job of Satan. He does that. It is his job to accuse the brethren. And so he makes accusations against us. Why, you can't be a believer. You remember what you did on on May the 1st, 1996, of course you do. You're not going to forget that. So, we need to experience God's grace that David knew in reference to his sin. David says three things about his sin. The first thing is, he says his sin was forgiven. There are a number of words in the Bible, Greek words, in the New Testament that are translated forgive or forgiveness. All of them with special meanings. The word that occurs here is, a, is an irregular verb which meant to send off or to send away. This same word forgiven in this verse is translated sent away in Matthew chapter 13 verse 36 where the Bible says that Jesus sent the multitude away so that he could explain to his disciples what he had told them about the parables in that 13th chapter of Matthew. The idea is that of separation and the bearing of the word upon the sin question is that it teaches us 
that God is willing to separate us from our sin. The sinner's transgression, the sinner's guilt is sent away from the sinner. Now we're unable to do that ourselves. When we as human beings punish a crime, we always punish the offender simply because there's no other way of doing it. But God, for whom all things are possible, separates the sin from the sinner. And he places the sin upon Jesus Christ. And there it is punished. That's what the author of Hebrews was talking about when he said in chapter 9, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. I saw an article in a prominent newspaper a couple of weeks ago where a man was going through the United States taking up money to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And that many Christians were giving money to that. I cannot think of anything more blasphemous. What? You'd want to rebuild the temple when Jesus Christ, Christ died once for all to take away sin? And you want to reinstitute a system of sacrifices that never, ever, ever, ever took away even one sin? But pointed to the one sacrifice that did? Listen, Jesus Christ died once for all to take away sin. When Satan accuses you of something that you did 40 years ago, you tell him, plain and simple, that's paid for. That's paid for. Christ propitiated the wrath of God, satisfied His holiness on my behalf. And that sin is paid for. It's what Peter meant when he wrote that he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. One of the ways that the, the ancient courts uh, sometimes punish the crime of murder was to take the body, the corpse of the victim, and tie it on the back of the offender. In other words, if you murdered a man, they'd take his corpse and tie it to your, to your body. So that you would walk around all the time with this stinking, rotting corpse tied to you. To remind you of the terrible sin that you had committed. It, it, it's a horrible picture. But it's an excellent portrait of what it means to bear the burden of one's sin and guilt. It's probably... What Paul was thinking about later in Romans chapter 7 when he cries out, Who will rescue me from this body of death? Notice he didn't say what. He said who. Who shall rescue me from this body of death? He gives the answer in the next verse. But thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is only through the atonement that Christ provided, not the blood of some animal slain, 
but only the atonement provided by Jesus Christ. And, and what bliss, what happiness, what joy it is to know that you have been delivered from this body of death. Not only are your sins forgiven, but God has separated you from them. That he has put them away forever. H.G. Uh, Spafford knew what it meant to have your sins put away. To be separated from them. For he wrote, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. Our sins have been separated from us. If you are a believer, God has separated you from your sin. Your sins are forgiven. Then David said his sin was covered. The, a, a different idea here than being forgiven, being sent away. Uh, the word covered that is translated here is one of those uh, special class of words that's used only once in the New Testament. Uh, so the word was not common. And it would probably not have been used here by Paul except that it was in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it was that text that he is quoting. Uh, but that text that he's quoting from gives us an important clue for interpreting what he meant here. Because where in the Old Testament we, do we find the idea of the covering over of sin? And if you know the Old Testament very well, your mind immediately goes to the work of the high priest performed on the Day of Atonement. When that, on that day, the priest took the blood of the sacrifice and he he had just made that sacrifice a few moments before in the courtyard. And he goes into the Holy of Holies. And there he sprinkles blood on the mercy seat, which was the top, the solid gold top of the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark was the tablets of stone on which was written the Ten Commandments, the law of God. When God looked down... He could not see the broken law, but the blood of the sacrifice. Meaning that the law, the, the broken law, the sinner who had committed transgressions could be atoned for. His sins could be atoned for. Now again, all of those sacrifices done on Jewish altars did not really take away sin. They all pointed to the one sacrifice that does take away sin. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ. I think that's what is involved here. And I think that uh, David's covering over of sin that I mentioned earlier when he killed Uriah and covered his sin is completely different than God covering it. David's covering was hiding it or destroying it or trying to. That's what we do. 
we commit sin. We lie about it. You know, we lie about it. Uh, you, you learn very early in life when you have children that you don't, one thing you don't have to teach them to do is you don't have to teach them to sin. You know, you, you have to teach them to tie their shoes, you have to teach them to tell time, you have to teach them all kinds of things. But you don't have to teach them to sin. They, it comes to them naturally. You know, I learned early with my sons. I'd, you know, one of them would knock over a water glass. Son, why'd you, why'd you knock that water glass over for? I didn't do it. I just sat here and watched you. What do you mean you didn't do it? I didn't do it. We cover up that we do that as adults. You know, did you did you say so and so about me? Oh no, no, I didn't do that. I would never do that. You know. We we justify ourselves before men. That's what David was trying to do. He was trying to justify his lust with another man's wife by killing her husband. So then he's free to take her as his wife. So he did not really cover his sin. God's covering was a true punishing of sin. And it is because sin had actually and truly been punished in Christ that when you and I come to Christ, we can be relieved from the burden of sin. You remember what David said later? He said, I'd, I'd make a sacrifice. But what God requires is a broken and contrite heart. David understood that all of those sacrifices were pointing to one sacrifice. Psalm 110 and others, he makes that clear. Just as Abraham understood the gospel, David understood the gospel. And because of that, because that's, I believe, what David was thinking, I find support for both the interpretation of taken away and covered in these verses. And they illustrate, by the way, parallel acts done by the priest on the Day of Atonement. Covered would refer to the covering over by the sin that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Taken away would refer to the ceremony that was performed earlier in the day when the sins of the people were confessed over the head of a goat who was called the scapegoat and then he was led out into the wilderness separated from sin sin covered both ideas clearly here so David's sin was forgiven his sin was covered and then finally it wasn't counted to him or it wasn't imputed to him again we come to this word legizomai counted, imputed, or reckoned, or credited. It's translated various ways in different translations of the Bible. And I've said several times, it's a bookkeeping term. It means that God would not put any sins on David's side of the ledger. Rather, he would impute the perfect righteousness of Christ to David. And he would put all of David's sins on Christ. What, what would we say today? Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not count sin. We'd say happy is the man who has a clean slate. You know. Happy is the man who starts over with no black marks against him. Uh, 
Sometimes we think that's too good to be true. As a matter of fact, I think as believers, most of the time we think that's too good to be true. So we run around beating ourselves up over sins that have already been forgiven, sins that have already been covered, sins that have already been taken away. Rather than rejoicing in the work of Christ, we constantly mourn over sins that are already covered. God says in Jeremiah 31, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, keep in mind, when God says, I will remember their sins no more, it doesn't mean that God suddenly becomes senile. When he says, I will not remember them, he means he won't count them against us. He knows we're sinners. He still knows that. But they just don't count. That, that, just, doesn't, that just doesn't count. The psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. You know the, the old little saying that says east is east and west is west and never the twain shall meet? You know what that means? It means if you start around the globe traveling west, when I used to travel to the to the Fiji Islands every year to teach in the seminary there, I'd start from Knoxville or Chattanooga and I'd fly west. I'd fly west to... Los Angeles, California, across all the time zones in the United States, and then I'd board a plane and head across the Pacific, still going west, still going west. We'd cross over the Hawaiian Islands. We'd come across several other islands, still going west. I'd land in Nandy, but if I got on another plane and kept going west, I'd just keep going west. When you're going west, you'll just keep going west. That's not true of north and south. If you travel north far enough, eventually you'll go over the polar ice cap and you'll be going south. Or if you travel south far enough, you'll be going north. But if you start traveling around the globe going west and keep going in that direction, you'll always be going west. You'll never be going east. Not ever. So as far as the east is from the west, God has removed our transgressions from us. There's another word here in Paul's citation of David's testimony that I think is very important and deserves some consideration. It's a little three-letter word, not. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. In several translations, that is translated never. And it's a good translation. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will never count his sin. Never means never. And it should be taken at full face value here. Although the opposite is almost always true in human relationships. You ever wrong somebody and apologize to them and they accept your apology and then five years later they bring it up to you? Like, wait, I thought that was done between I thought we'd settle that. I had a man in the church one time, and I, I wronged him. I flat wronged him. I was in, I sinned, and I told him that, and I asked his forgiveness. Oh yes, yes. Three or four years later, he brought it up to one of my deacons. Well, he did so and so. Well, well, wait a second. I thought that was done with. God doesn't do that. God, once we are in Christ. 
and our sins have been imputed to him, God never, never counts them against us again. Not ever. Sometimes we do that with children. Sometimes parents will remember something foolish that a child did four or five years ago and get in a crowd of adults and in order to get a laugh or to get some, you know, they'll bring up what the child has done. What a terrible thing to do. What a horrible thing to do. God doesn't do that. We do that as adults sometimes as well. The text tells us God's not like that. Once God has forgiven our sin, it's done with. He's not going to bring it up again. He will never bring it up again. He will not bring it up in the past or in, in, the, in this life. He will never remind us of past sins. He will always begin with us precisely where we are in the present. I heard a sermon a guy preached years ago about believers going to stand before God. And he said there'd be like a huge TV screen. And all of your sins would be up there. All the sins you've ever committed in your life would be up there. And I thought at the time, I thought, that's a terrible thought. I don't know if I want to go to heaven or not, if that's going to be the case. And then I realized, if I get to heaven and there's a huge screen with sins up there, it'll be blank for me. Not because I haven't sinned, but because they're on Christ. I have believed I have believed that Christ died for my sins, that he was buried and rose the third day, and God has imputed all of my sins to Christ, and he will never, never count them against me. Not now, not tomorrow, not in the day of judgment. My sins are imputed to Christ. Never be remembered anymore. That is the real blessedness the terminology that David wants us to understand here. And listen, as a believer, you can know that you are forgiven, but if you are still carrying around the burden of past sins, you can still be miserable. Don't do that. Don't do that. Your sins are on Christ. God will never, ever bring them up again. David is a prime example. David had a great reputation. He was the king. He had wealth. But the psalm that these verses come from, that we've been studying, describes what it was like for him before his sin was covered by God, before God separated from his sin. He said, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then David found true forgiveness. The burden of his sin was rolled away. And he could write, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will never count sin against him. That is a blessing that we should be enjoying every day. Reminding ourselves that God will never, never count sin against us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, <clears throat> thank you.